0: Welcome to the Nerd Party. Welcome back to Throwback Paperback. I'm Asia Bonilla, one of the hosts.
1: And I'm Charles Sheeland, the other host.
0: And today we are discussing the second 10 chapters of Percy Jackson and the Battle of the Labyrinth by Rick Riordan. For those of you who are new, we're a podcast with the Nerd Party Network that takes a book club approach to reading and rereading young adult literature.
1: Yep, we're best friends and we wanted to share certain childhood and adolescent books with each other. So we figured we'd share those discussions with anyone else in a podcast for anyone who wants to join.
0: We're starting with books that one of us hasn't read and the other has. And in sixth grade, I read the Percy Jackson series. So our newcomer to the book or series in this case is Charles, and he's going to give us a brief summary of our covered chapters. So in case you didn't read along.
1: I'm almost done with summary duty, but we're getting there. So let's wrap up this book. Our crew gets to Festus's office or wherever he hangs out, and... He asks them to run an errand for him, so he'll tell them how to get to Daedalus's office as well. And he go, they go to check on on one of Hephaestus' forges. It goes really badly. Grover and Tyson separate from Annabeth and Percy. Percy gets blown into the sky. Everyone thinks he's dead, but actually he's just been on vacation with Calypso. He gets back to camp, and he's figured out how to get through the labyrinth. So he and Annabeth go into the city and collect Rachel Elizabeth Dare and use her as their guide. Once in the labyrinth, the three of them encounter Luke and more obstacles, and they finally get to Daedalus' workshop. There, it's revealed that Daedalus is actually Quintus. Our squad escapes, including Nico this time, and they get into Mount Tam, only to see Kronos resurrected, living in Luke's body. Creepy, creepy, creepy. They hook up with Tyson and Grover and encounter Pan in a cave, who promptly dies, so that's fun. And they get back to camp. There's a huge battle with some of Luke's forces, And then we have our after camp season wrap up and Percy heading back to New York for a very exciting birthday. That was a lot. A lot happens in this one. Normally, I could skip a couple chapters. Normally, they're like, you know, there are some episodes that we don't really need to mention in the summary, but every single chapter had something really crucial to the plot line. But it was exciting. It was an exciting, like, page turner kind of read. And that was definitely my impression. Similar to last week that my first impression was that I loved the complexity in this book. We have the memories with Daedalus and we have Luke and we have Nico and we have Percy and we have the multiple timelines and plot threads that tie together, which made the ending more satisfying. And it definitely made it more of a page turner than the other books have been, at least in my experience. And I wonder if maybe Riordan was going to make the book a little more complex because readers were getting older. I don't know if that was intentional, but you know, it's something that I oh I always use Harry Potter, but there, I have other examples as well. I'm just can't think of them when we were recording, but you know, the Harry Potter books get increasingly more dark as they go on because the readers were getting older. And I wonder if maybe this one with the more complex plot line is because the readers were getting older. Anyway, Asia, what about your impressions?
0: I definitely agree that this has been one of my favorite books to reread so far in the series. And I also think that it's because of a more complex plotline. There was a lot of different stories that finally kind of melded together by the end. So that was really fun to read. And I also did enjoy how the characters starting to grow up. We're getting more of a romance coming onto the scene with Annabeth and Percy. So you can just see that the characters are getting older, starting to think more for themselves. So I definitely enjoyed this. And I think I mentioned this in the last episode, this book, I definitely didn't remember nearly as much. So I was getting more of that effect of almost reading it for the first time, which for any readers out there, that's the best feeling is not knowing what's happening next. So I definitely enjoyed this a lot.
1: Yeah, I, I'm excited to read the books that I've picked, but I'm excited for you to get the new reader feeling because I've been able to enjoy it for sure while reading the series. So let's get into it. We can start with Annabeth. You know, we mentioned romance. Always Annabeth. We get the fact that she's a brainchild, like all of Athena's kids, because Athena herself was a brainchild, which, okay, I you know, I just thought it was a little strange, but I get it.
0: Well, I thought it was interesting because, you know, for a lot of the other demigods, their godparent is the male in the relationship. So, you know, obviously they impregnated the mortal woman. So it makes sense. Like, okay, they were born like a normal baby, but for children of Athena or Demeter or some of the female goddesses, it is kind of like, so how did they come to be? Like, was the goddess pregnant? And then she had the baby and set it down. So I, I thought that was a little bit of an interesting explanation, but yeah, it is kind of just, okay, you're a brainchild, but I did like that. They at least kind of explained it.
1: Yeah, it was it was it was cute. It was world building. We're all for it, but it was, yeah.
0: It was okay. And while we're on Annabeth, she kisses Percy when they're in the forges when they end up having to separate and she doesn't know if she's going to see him again. Which, wow, what an escalation. Finally.
1: Yeah. And I'm assuming she means kissing, like he means kissing on the mouth, right?
0: Of course. They would have said if it was a kiss on the cheek. This is a straight kiss just a peck probably but a kiss
1: of course yeah i was very 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 excited about that yeah i I figured it had to be in the mouth too because the previous time she's kissed him on the cheek and it said that so anyway yeah percy's a little dazed afterwards and then you know we have the forges and It's a perfect segue for Percy Power because, one, we find out that he doesn't burn immediately because he's made of water. Okay, so am I, but whatever. (laughs) And then there's a huge explosion and we get verification that Percy is, once again, incredibly strong.
0: Yeah, definitely. Like I said, Percy was definitely a book childhood crush I had because he's pretty cool. But after he creates that huge explosion and escapes from the volcano, he ends up on Calypso's prison island, which I just want to say, this whole like scene for me was just kind of... It was sad. It was sad, in my opinion, because Calypso's trapped on this island because she supported Atlas, who's also her father, during the first war with the Titans. So this is her punishment, basically. And we also learn when... Hephaestus comes. That Aphrodite might have landed Percy there to continue to complicate his love life because, you know, Calypso offers Percy this escape. Basically, she's like, "You can stay here for me forever. Stay with me here forever, and we can just live our lives. There's no. You'll never have to fulfill the prophecy. You'll just live in this paradise." But obviously, he'd be leaving behind all of his friends and essentially not fulfilling his duty to the gods. So I just thought that was sad. But luckily, Hephaestus comes. To tell Percy that Annabeth did make it back to him, so he will give them to key to finding Daedalus, which this is we already know that Percy already knows what it is, and he explains, you know, how Theseus says that the love for a mortal for a mortar girl more oh my god for a- mortal <laughs> Theseus's love for a mortal girl is what made him see things clearly because she could see. And they said specifically because she didn't have a drop of God, God blood in her. And we talked about this a little bit in the last episode because Charles said how he felt it was Annabeth because we talked about the idea of like mortality and just because they're half-bloods, she's still, she's not immortal. But I did mention in the last episode because I was like, I assumed when they were talking about it it was going to be Rachel Elizabeth Dare because how she is an actual mortal. She's just a human being. And so that makes sense because she's able to see things clearly. She can see through the mist very easily. So it makes sense why it's tying to her. So I was more right than you. I don't know if I outright said it, but I had assumed it was going to be her, not Annabeth.
1: Yeah, I was wrong. Sure. I I will admit that. I just wasn't sure if you had actually said Rachel, but it, it makes way more sense.
0: I did. You can listen to the recording.
1: Okay either way it makes more sense for sure because we need to tie her in like otherwise she's kind of just like a pointless character
0: yeah it makes sense but it
1: it made sense yeah it was nice to have her back so we have to regroup get back to we have to resurrect percy because everyone thinks he's dead they're having a funeral for him and he shows up big drama of course <laughs> and they go and collect rachel and then they head back into the maze
0: Yes. Uh, Can I just say that the moment when Percy shows up like at his own funeral, doesn't it give you the vibe like, you know, if you have to like leave class and like you come into class late or something and that feeling of like everybody turns around to look at you when you come in the door. That's like the vibe I got. I mean, it's obviously way more dramatic because he's at his own funeral, but that's what I imagined it as.
1: Yeah, I never left class. I was goody two shoes.
0: Okay, Whatever. (laughs) Anyway, we should mention before we go back into the labyrinth that during this time, or when they get back, when Percy gets back, they tell him that Quintus has disappeared back into the labyrinth, and he left behind Mrs. O'Leary for Percy, I think. But Percy, basically, based on the information he has, he's assuming that he's a spy for Luke, and he just doesn't trust him.
1: Which, I was right. And we will get a little more into Daedalus and Quintus as we get to that chapter. It's not quite right. Like, he is working for Luke, but he's not really working for Luke. He's working for himself. Yeah. He's he's selfish rather than evil, but I don't want to skip too far ahead because we'll have to get to that reveal. But we're almost back into the maze.
0: Yes. So before we get into the maze, we're going to talk about one more Percy dream, and this time... Percy has a dream about how Daedalus is being housed by another king with his daughters 10 years in the future. But King Minos has shown up and he's made up this riddle that he sent out to like everyone saying, whoever can solve this will win all this gold. And it's basically a trick to find Daedalus because it's a riddle that only he would be able to solve. So he goes and at first the king is like hesitant, but he finally agrees to just hand him over because obviously he wants the gold. But the daughters end up killing Minos because they are very loyal to Daedalus and they kill him with some kind of invention where it like mummifies him. And Daedalus takes all his things and goes into hiding in the labyrinth.
1: How would you pronounce that other king's name?
0: The new king? I didn't write down his name. What's his name? I'll
1: write it down for you.
0: Yeah. Oh, don't Uh, make me say No, I just, this is just
1: a callback to last episode because we talked for so long about being able to mispronounce things.
0: (laughs) That's how you, that's, is that it? Coca Cocalus? I have no idea. I could be making this up. Well, that's why I didn't write down the name. I literally, I was like the king because I was like, I'm not even going to bother with the name because it's irrelevant. I know,
1: but that's why I had to bring it up again. (laughs)
0: just to make me say it yeah
1: well you make me listen to all those stupid dreams all over again (laughs) also
0: it's good information
1: after this one when he goes and when daedalus says that he has to go live in the labyrinth i wrote down he must have made himself partially an automaton so that he could live forever in the labyrinth because he says he's trying to avoid minos forever and just want to say turns out to be right but again that's me skipping ahead (laughs) And I keep saying we're going back into the labyrinth, but we have more things to discuss. Because when we pick up Rachel, Annabeth is so jealous and she is so rude. She doesn't want to work with Rachel. And Rachel's actually really nice to her and she's really good at what she's doing. And I was so frustrated with Annabeth that she was so, like, it wasn't even like she made one side comment. Like, every single thing she said to Rachel was rude.
0: Every single thing. like I think,
1: Every single thing.
0: No, because when she says something about— They have
1: one bonding moment about parents, Yeah, right? about
0: parents, because Rachel also doesn't have a good relationship, at least with her father, I think. So when that comes up, Annabeth kind of backs off, because obviously she can relate. Because she doesn't have the best relationship with her father. I mean, they've kind of made up a little bit in the last book, but she hasn't always had a good relationship with him. But, I mean, she's jealous. Like, she's worried that Percy likes her better or something. They're, what, like 14 <laughs>
1: 15 or almost they're 14 they're about to turn 15.
0: Yeah they're kids.
1: Mm, still like it, it was it was not a good look for my Athena sister to behave like that but we do have a good moment between Percy and Annabeth when they work out together as a team without even having to say much like Annabeth gives Percy the clue and Percy figures his out and they defeat Antaeus together Mm -hmm. and I really liked that moment, and I was like, these are the kind of great moments that we have between the two of them that they have because they have years of chemistry. Exactly. And then you just want to slap Annabeth for behaving like a child.
0: Oh, my gosh. Okay, well, after they defeat Antaeus, then Percy ends up having to use the whistle Quintus gave gave him because all of Luke's army is there ready to attack them, and they need to get out. And the whistle does bring Mrs. O'Leary. She shows up and helps them, and they escape. And they end up saving a traitor half-blood with them named Ethan Nak- Nakamura. Nakamura. Nakamura.
1: <laughs> That's not even a mythological name. That's a pretty common name.
0: I've never heard that name before. And again, are you on the West over, Coast? I've never seen that specific name before. And. I'm also terrible at pronouncing things. So even if it wasn't that hard, I'm not going to get it right. Nakamura, who he was being used for sport in the arena. Percy was supposed to fight him and kill him. But Percy lets him go. And he tells him, you know, when it's time to run, run. And so he escapes with them. But once they're out of immediate danger, he just leaves. And he even says, he makes a comment of like, you shouldn't have spared me. Like, Which was kind of rude, honestly. They just saved his life and he's totally ungrateful and just runs away, but okay.
1: Yeah, because Percy totally could have annihilated him. Like, and Ethan was going for the kill and Percy would have been able to. And Percy was like, I can't do it.
0: I also, I do like that they didn't have, Riordan didn't have Percy kill him because I do think it's this idea of like, you know, when you're a hero, you don't want to kill people unless it's absolutely necessary, which like, even though Ethan ends up being kind of rude. It's not – he's still, like, innocent in the sense of, like, there's no reason to really kill him, especially when it's other people saying, like, you have to kill this person. So I like that because it keeps Percy's integrity.
1: Oh, it would be awful if Percy killed – also, because he's immortal, he would die and he would just be dead. Like, Percy kills monsters left and right, but they're resurrected every few months or years. Yeah. So it's not even like Percy's been doing, like, murder, murder. Yeah, it's
0: not the same. Yeah. So anyway, then the crew gets to Daedalus' Daedalus's workshop, and we find this is when we find out that Quintus is Daedalus, and this is actually his fifth body, which is why he's named himself Quintus, which means fifth in Latin. But Athena has branded him with the dark mark of a bird, which is the, like, birthmark scar thing Percy sees when they're sword fighting, like, way at the beginning of the book. And she marks him this way to remind him of the murder of his nephew. And we also find out the Daedalus has already gave Luke the string and he helped them because he believes Cronus and the Titans are going to inevitably win and that they will help him continue to stay alive and avoid death. And that they'll finally cast Minos into the pits of Tartarus. So very like selfish reasons of why he helped them.
1: Yeah. And another thing that's explained by him being part automaton is when he was sword fighting with Percy when they first met and he doesn't get sweaty. It's because he's not a human. He doesn't have a body. He's a robot.
0: Wow. Yeah, I forgot about that. Good connection. (gasps)
1: Ooh. Maybe that's why I was, like, predisposed to expect some robot stuff. Also, they talk about robots all the time in this book. I guess they're not robots. Mm -hmm. Automatons. Mm -hmm. But, yeah. It wasn't evil of him. It was just entirely selfish. Like, he just doesn't want to be hounded by this creepy ghost king. But, anyway. All Hall breaks loose. Kelly, the Empusa... And Pusai, I don't know, shows up with Minos, creepy ghost dude. And they've got Nico in chains. Nico breaks open the floor, you know, as one does. That's kind of his go-to move. And the good guys escape, including Nico. So we've got Percy, Annabeth, Rachel, and Nico. They strap on some Daedalus wings or Icarus wings, maybe. And they get out. Luckily, they escape and they're like in Colorado. Doesn't really matter because they get into a car right afterwards.
0: Yeah, they're because they talk something about how Daedalus' workshop like moves, cause how the labyrinth, you know, just magically moves. Of course But they're it does. somewhere. <laughs> and so once they escape, they're kind of regrouping, and Nico admits that his plan was to sacrifice Daedalus for Bianca because Daedalus obviously has been he is the definition of someone who has cheated death. And we find out that Nico can actually feel when people die. So who does he say that he knows hasn't died? They say, like, oh, Daedalus, you
1: know? because they think that Daedalus dies in the workshop.
0: Oh, okay, that's what it is. I just remember that, because then they ask about Tyson and Grover, and he's like, because they're not humans or half-bloods, it's harder for me to feel them, so he's not 100% sure. But then they end up, well, Rachel hails a town car, which... Obviously points to she's probably a part of some rich and powerful family because she walks up to the driver and is briefly talks to him, and then he's ready to, like, he canceled the person he's supposed to drive be driving for and is like, come on, I'll take you right away. So she's obviously a very, her family name must be very important. And then they drive for a while, and they finally find a new entrance to the labyrinth, and they enter again.
1: Yeah, they're just in and out, in and out. And they get into the labyrinth. And they basically make it to Mount Tam back in San Francisco. And they see Ethan Nakamura. He's pledging himself to Kronos, but it's or Kronos' coffin. But in the coffin, it's not Kronos, it's Luke. Luke's body in Kronos's creepy, creepy coffin.
0: Which I called. I told you that they were some way linked, an empathy link or whatever, and I knew that Luke was going to give up his body to Kronos. So terrible. And at this point, this is where I'm like, I just feel like there's no way Luke can be redeemable. And I know they talk about it a little bit more at the end of the book about to kill Kronos, like, they're obviously going to have to kill Luke, most likely. So I just feel like there's no coming back from this. But we also learn that the Telkines, the like fish dogs or whatever, fish dog seal things, re- have remade Kronos' Scythe, and that it, which is the. Blade he used to slice up his own father, Uranus. Is that how you say it?
1: Yeah, I would have just said Uranus, like the planet, but...
0: But it's with an... It has an O.
1: Okay, Uranus, fine.
0: And this is also the blade that was used to cut up Kronos by the gods, so it can sever your soul from your body. So it's a terrible blade. Sounds terrifying. And... (laughs) when Cronus like steps out and Percy like tries to fight him like Cronus can also literally bend time so he like slows everything down so Percy can't move and he's just coming towards him and luckily Rachel and the rest of the crew like show up and Rachel throws her hairbrush at Kronos to like stun him for a second and that And Percy's just like, we have to run. Like, there's no way we can handle this. Like, he's too powerful. So it's just not going to end well. Like, I'm really curious for the next book to find out how they're ultimately going to stop him. Because he just seems too, too powerful.
1: Yeah. I wonder if the scythe, because I also think that Luke doesn't deserve redemption because he's evil. But I wonder if because the scythe has the power to separate body from soul, if somehow they're going to sever Luke's body from Kronos' soul
0: to redeem
1: him. But again, I don't think Luke even deserves that at this point. I know we're supposed to think that, but anyway, that's my theory, so we'll see if that comes back. Or if somehow the scythe gets used on Kronos again. Mm -hmm. Because it is how he got chopped up the first time. But they have to find a more permanent solution than putting him in the um, (laughs) The recycle compost container, Tartarus. Because it clearly didn't work. But this is, you know, a big turning point. Like, we've got our big bad resurrected. and We've got our Voldemort back alive. You know, we've got, again, Harry Potter, you've just got, a, you've got an analogy for everything. We have our true embodiment of evil back in living form. And one thing I wanted to mention from this is that during his pledge, Ethan says that his godparent is Nemesis, the god of revenge. And we've heard about a lot of the minor gods. We've encountered them like Jaina's last book, and they mentioned Hecate a couple times. Mm -hmm. But we've not met any of their kids.
0: Well, besides like monster kids, because I think some of the monsters.
1: Yeah, some of the monsters. Yeah, But we haven't met any like half-blood demigod kids, which because, and I was thinking about that, and I was like, that's one of the reasons those kids probably resent them, because their parents probably aren't allowed to claim them. Because there's no house for them at Camp Half Blood, mm-hmm. so they're either stuck living in Hermes's cabin because they're not good enough to be Big Twelve, or they're not they're not Twelve Olympians, whatever it is. So like we have this class structure of the three Big Three and then the rest of the Twelve Olympians, but then there's the other minor gods. Like they either can't claim their kids, which make their kids resent them, of course, or they claim their kids and their kids get stuck in Hermes' cabin, I guess, or their kids like. <laughs> Get killed off, like, yeah. Because if you're one of those minor gods, but you do manage to be a demigod, like you're like third class citizen demigod. (laughs) So of course that's going to breed. Yeah, like we got Percy superpowers every single day. He like finds out a new superpower. He gets prophetic dreams, and then we've got like Ethan over here. He's like, my mom or my dad is the god of revenge, and like they completely ignored me. Yeah. So no wonder they there's so much resentment.
0: Yeah, it's kind of sad, honestly.
1: It is sad. (laughs) Also, as they're escaping, another thing after Rachel does her thing, and I think, because I think this is going to be important, is that Nico makes stalagmites or stalagmites. I can't remember which ones come up from the ground. But he, like, makes, like, a rift in the ground and makes these huge black rocks from the underworld come up to, like, block them. And Percy's like, Nico, you kind of just gave yourself away right there. Like, only Hades' kid could do that. Yeah. And Nico's like, I don't care. And I was like, "Um, I bet Kronos cares because if Nico's around, then he has another option to destroy the gods. (laughs) And finally, one more thing I want to say after this whole thing is that Annabeth still defends Luke. And I'm, again, makes me pretty mad at her. Like, I think it's inexcusable. I know she's like, when he got hit by the brush, you could see Luke for one second. I'm like... Yeah, but he also gave his body to any e- the embodiment of evil.
0: Yeah, it's also just interesting too cuz as a child of Athena who, you know, they're supposed to be fighting for the greater good, they're both they're usually able to see the big picture. She's really struggling right now with Luke like she is really saying too loyal to him, like she needs to let him go like he is evil. <laughs> but anyway, moving on, after they escape from that, they end up linking up with Tyson and Grover, which I thought was kind of, you know, convenient. They just very ba- very convenient. They basically just run right into them, and they end up finding, of course, the Great God Pan, and he tells them that he is dying and he is specifically wants Grover to pass on this message because he cannot save the wild anymore. It's up to everyone else to collectively do the work. Which I thought was like pretty good commentary on the climate change and global warming and things and how we as humans really need to work to fix it. Like no one's no magical being is gonna come and make all of the terrible things we've done go away. And then Pan just fades away and his whole little sanctuary in the labyrinth just also fades away. The animals disappear. It was pretty sad, but it was, that whole scene was, like, very convenient to the plot. Like, we've been talking about this god Pan. He's lost. They just somehow come across Tyson and Grover. And then, boom, they've met the god and he just dies. Like, that's it.
1: Yeah. I really didn't like it. I felt like it was majorly anticlimactic to, for this build up that we've had. Like, this has been Grover's defining aspect for four books. And... It doesn't seem to take any particular skill. It's just that they happen to be able to navigate the labyrinth. Therefore, they can find him. And I don't know if anyone listening has watched Game of Thrones, but everyone knows the last season of Game of Thrones was pretty hot garbage. And you get the White Walker battle, episode three of the last season. And the White Walkers, even if you haven't watched Game of Thrones, you've probably heard of them. They're like the ice zombies in Game of Thrones. And they the first scene of the show, it's not about any of the monarchy or the ruling or the backstabbing or any of that. It's these ice zombies mutilating humans. Like it's like, that's the whole point of the book series is like, there's this very vicious, like evil threat that everyone is ignoring. Cause they're all just trying to be King. And then in the final season of the show, just to wrap it up, they just have one girl like pop up and like stab one guy and they all fall apart. And it was like, very anticlimactic for what should have been the much overarching role. And this has been all satyrs and Grover specifically's plot line. And there's just like, ah, well, there we've got our pan and, ah, he's gone.
0: I just don't understand why, like, if he's a god, like why couldn't he have come out of the labyrinth and told everybody himself? Like, why has he been waiting all these years for a satyr to come to deliver the message?
1: I'm not sure. I'm not sure.
0: Like, I understand he's weak and everything, but, like, if you're a god, like, can't you send everybody an iris message or something, like, an announcement?
1: Well, it doesn't have to do with the fading that, as humans forget about them, they lose their power. Isn't that how, like, they forgot about the other gods and that's how Apollo got the sun role? Like, they for- people forgot about Helios, so Helios faded away. And maybe Pan is
0: the same way? Yeah, they talk about that a little bit. It's more just, I, I guess, I just don't understand like why you, why would he go hiding in underground where it's unlikely anyone will ever find him? Like, I think they say he's been hiding for like two thousand years. Like, the whole thing is just like it's a little. It it seems a little bit unnecessary to the plotline. If I'm being a hundred percent honest, like I would agree. Obviously, this is something that's good for Grover and everything. But as far as like Percy and the other halfbloods, like this doesn't really affect them. But I also think, if anything. Riordan probably put it in there because it is it, it's a good commentary on climate change and things and like nature and how we've been terrible to the earth. So if anything, like it could be just there for that. But as far as like going with the rest of the story for the other main characters, it does seem like it doesn't like they don't really care as much. You know, this is more for the satyrs.
1: I would agree. I've, I felt like it was not necessary for the plot of the books and therefore it felt stupid to have it sort of wrapped up in this way because it felt like it was just kind of dumped in like we had to finish this plot line and i didn't feel i felt like we had more of a build-up because grover is one of our main characters and if we hadn't has had as much of a build-up maybe i wouldn't have minded it as much but
0: yeah yeah
1: either way we move on from pan
0: well anyway so with pan dead and Kronos alive they Go ahead and head back to the camp for the battle that they have to prepare for because at this point they have Cronus's army has the string, they're coming, so they have to be ready to fight. So they drop off Rachel in Manhattan and the Battle of the Labyrinth, the name of the book, occurs.
1: And it was pretty violent. Like we haven't gotten there's some pretty violent descriptions and like the people who get hurt. Like we have some like named characters dying, which is new for us. Yeah. But we do get a really tender moment at the beginning of the battle between Chiron and Percy. And I just want to say, like, Chiron's relationship with Percy and Annabeth has really grown over the books, too. Like, he definitely, like, they're his favorite. And, like, he'll, like, pick them up. Like, he'll, he'll they'll just be talking, like, scoop them up and be like, the three of us have to go talk privately because, like, you know, we're the cool ones. But, you know, before the battle starts, like, Percy, they're all standing by their house. And Percy, obviously, is, like, by himself because, you know, only one. And Chiron's like, stand with me. Let's talk and think as we contemplate. Like, it was very, it was like a very tender mentor-mentee moment. And like, you know, wait, Percy, we'll use you in the battle. Don't worry. But I don't know. I just, that was my favorite part of the battle was the fact that they had this really emotional moment between the two of them before it goes crazy.
0: Yeah. And it was a very violent scene, like the waves of things. But the way the battle ended.
1: Crazy
0: just say that Grover basically saves the day because he makes this terrifying sound which they describe as the sound of pure fear and in response all the titan forces retreat back into the labyrinth and the battle just ends i just i I, did
1: not like this one either
0: it just it just seems like he's like he does, like, a battle cry, and then everyone just runs away. Like, it just seems, again, like, a little random. Like, I just can't imagine seeing this in real life because I would just be like, why did they run away?
1: Have you seen that video? Have I showed you this video? Okay, this is, like, the danger of doing a podcast with your best friend and roommate. Like, I'm like, have I showed you this video of the marmot? Like, it's a kind of like a mini bear screaming on a mountainside.
0: I don't think okay, so. Okay,
1: well, for anyone listening, YouTube, marmot screaming, and I'll show it to her after this episode. But it's just, like, that's exactly what I imagined Grover just... I also, like, it's, like, my frustration reaction. Like, I send it as, like, a gif all the time. But anyway, like, watch it afterwards, and then you'll know exactly what Charles envisioned as I was reading this book. Like, I envisioned Grover doing the marmot bear scream, and...
0: But it's, like, it's, like, a battle cry. Like, I don't know, I just imagine, like, screaming, and then everyone just runs away. Like, I don't know, it just seemed really random, and... But, you know... They explain it away later. They explain how in the Titan War, Pan, the god of Pan, he yelled, and that's what made everybody run away, and that's why the name of Pan, like, created the word panic or something. They explain it like that. So they explain it away. I guess they try to make it make sense, but it did just seem a little, it's just one of those things, convenient. Because he screamed, they just left so that, you know, they camp, so that the camp wouldn't get overwhelmed. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, also because they're kind of in a bind, because we've been told for a couple books how weak the camp is and how understaffed they are, and they've, like, you know, numbers just weren't in their favor, but obviously we couldn't have the camp destroyed at book four.
0: Yeah, because we still have another book. But anyway, moving on, we, during the fight, Daedalus and Miss O'Leary come and join in, and so after it's over, after the battle's over, Daedalus comes over and he gives Annabeth one of his computers with some of his unfinished ideas and he announces that he is finally ready to die because he doesn't want to leave the camp vulnerable anymore. And once he dies, the labyrinth will collapse. So, Nico releases his soul and it's like a painless death, I believe. And an earthquake begins as the entire labyrinth is destroyed and it collapses. And Daedalus also officially gives Mrs. O'Leary to Percy to watch after her, and Briares, the hundred-handed one, goes to work in the Forges, which he also showed up, which is how they defeat Campy. He, like, throws a whole bunch of rocks at her.
1: Yeah, they just just obliterate her.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah, we're definitely in, like, the wrapping-up territory of the book, where you get you know, after the big moment, they all get back to camp and we figure out what everyone's doing for the summer or the rest of the year. So. Yeah. Who else do we have to wrap up? You already talked about the power.
0: Yeah, the power of the, power of pan. Power
1: of pan. Ooh, pan powers. Hashtag pan powers.
0: <laughs> anyway, with Grover.
1: Silenus. Silenus. Silenus.
0: Silenus. Character in
1: like- Narnia book four. Prince Caspian.
0: Okay, good to know. You're welcome. And the other older satyrs all don't want to believe Grover. They all say that he can't be dead. He's lying. Percy and Annabeth, they all are like, we witnessed it. We all saw him die. And they're like, you're all lying. It can't be true. And that also just reminded me of like older people who often don't believe in climate change and don't want to do anything to fix it. And they don't want to take responsibility. Whereas even in the books, Grover, even though the old satyrs, I think, They don't believe him and because Chiron and Dionysus end up saying that they're not going to exile Grover because the satyrs want to exile him because they think he's lying because Dionysus comes in basically Grover's saved from being exiled, but they still end up leaving and basically saying like, we're not doing anything, but Grover is still able to tell some of the younger satyrs like younger generation that do believe him and say, you know, we all have to go out to different parts of the wild and save what we can. So I just thought another good commentary. That's why I think honestly, that's, has to be why this like part of the story was even included because it really has nothing to do with anybody else.
1: Yeah. Riordan's getting in some, he's getting some commentary and we had our education system. There was, there were a couple other ones in earlier books where I was like, Ooh, that's a political sociopolitical commentary. But this climate change one, I, I like that. I think that, and I like that you tied in the older satyrs because I didn't think about that. Like obviously when I saw like you must go out and save the wild, I was like, okay, I get what that means. Yeah. But I didn't, but it totally makes sense that the Council of Cloven Elders would be too elder to pay attention and deny it. Whatever, whatever. They've been dissolved, so we don't care. And then we've got my boy Nico. I love Nico. Nico and Clarice are my two favorites now because you love all Bethany the like being a twat, dark
0: evil people anti heroes. Yeah, you like them.
1: The complex characters. Yeah, yeah
0: the mm-hmm. underdog. I do love a
1: complex character. Yep, I love an underdog. Well, my boy Nico, he decides he's going to leave camp because he there's no ha- cabin for him. He doesn't have a place at camp because Hades doesn't have a place at Olympus. And that was really wise of him, like much more wise than Annabeth being a little petty and jealous. Nico is being so, he's being very sage about looking at you know what is he going to do at camp? He's also already been at way out of the world, and even though he's like twelve or thirteen, he's like he's eleven. Like summoning dark spirits. Okay, <laughs> even younger. He's like eleven. He's a child, but he's like, you know what? I can summon the dead people, so I don't need you. I, I I just thought it was very wise of Nico, and I liked that. I didn't feel it didn't feel right for him to like just be like, oh, I'm back at camp, yippee dee and he didn't have a cabin, and that's like a big thing because as we see, people who don't have cabins and they just got stuck at Hermes, they become evil (laughs) yep also we get Dionysus telling Percy that he cured Chris's madness and that was really sweet of him Dionysus is getting nicer as the book goes on and then we see Clarice and Chris holding hands we're happy for Clarice because she you know she's the best and she deserves happiness so I'm glad that she gets Chris back
0: yes and It's finally time we can break down the entire prophecy because Annabeth finally tells us the last line.
1: Also, just want to say another point against Annabeth. And I'm team Annabeth because she's my sister, but like she's being stupid this book.
0: Anyway, so if we reread the prophecy, it starts with you shall delve in the darkness of the endless maze, obviously the labyrinth, the dead, the traitor, and the lost one, Raze. So we know for sure the traitor ends up being Ethan... Nakamura. and Did I say it right? No, I didn't. You just laughed. No. What is it? <laughs>
1: <laughs> Nakamura. Nakamura.
0: Okay, Ethan. Ethan is the traitor, <laughs> so that was cool. The dead and the lost one. The lost one is Pan. And then the dead was... It could be... Could it be... Minos? Probably. Probably Minos.
1: Because he's dead.
0: And then the next line is...
1: The ghost you king. You shall
0: rise or fall by the ghost king's hand, which is actually Nico, which
1: Nico, yeah. That one's not Minos, which means that the dead must be yes, Minos.
0: Because Nico is the ghost king and the child of Athena's final stand, which we find out is actually about Daedalus, not Annabeth, because Daedalus is also a child of Athena, and it is his final stand. He finally decides to succumb to death and destroy with a hero's final breath. I don't know what that.
1: I think that could be Ethan because it's his final breath um, or destroy with a destroy hero. with hero's
0: final breath. Oh, uh, probably this Ooh. is still connecting to the child, the child of Athena's final stand, destroy with the hero's final breath. He destroys the labyrinth with his final breath and he becomes a hero. There we go. Yeah. And the last Thank line, you. which Annabeth finally reveals is, and lose a love worse than death, which she probably didn't reveal it because she wasn't sure if it was about Percy or not. And so she obviously doesn't want to lose him, but it's about Luke because Luke doesn't die. And Annabeth does really love Luke, which is clear throughout this. Cause as Charles has mentioned a lot, she's made a lot of not the wisest excuses, a lot of excuses, and not the most wise decisions. And she has very mixed feelings about him. And she does essentially lose Luke because he is Kronos. Now he is one with Kronos. So it's a very sad situation, but yeah, Annabeth is obviously just not taking it well. And it is kind of interesting that she didn't reveal it beforehand, but I do think it's because she was worried about who it was going to be about and she just didn't want anybody to know. Or maybe she suspected that it was going to be about Luke, so she didn't want people to know.
1: Yeah, yeah, she does say that she's like she was worried that it was going to be about Percy. And I wonder if, because we have Hera and a couple other people saying, annabeth will have to choose i wonder if that will still like she'll still have to choose in the next book or whether that was only in reference to the stand but every one including the gods got the prophecy wrong i don't know maybe i'm overthinking it again
0: it could be i think i think if it's if the choice hasn't happened yet i think her choice is ultimately going to be between luke and percy like, the idea of... Well, she
1: better choose Percy, or else she's going to get a knife.
0: Like, the idea of choosing... Because she obviously... Like, she has strong feelings for Luke. So, choosing her loyalty to Luke, and continuing maybe to try to save him. Not necessarily, like, crossing over to the dark side. But maybe, like, finally letting him go would be choosing Percy fully. Whereas, until she can do that, she can't ultimately choose Percy, because she's being drawn in like, pulled in two different directions. So... That'll be interesting because yeah, she doesn't really have like a very hard decision. Like, there's no hard decision that's made in this book by Annabeth. I don't really think.
1: No. Also, I don't really think real like it's choosing between Luke and Percy because guess what? Luke is now Kronos.
0: But it's still like when I'm saying choosing Luke, it's the idea she just of, likes
1: Luke because he's pretty. Well, but,
0: well, also like obviously she looked up to him and blah blah. We we know why she likes Luke, but. It would be choosing this idea of she's still going to... She's never going to give up. She's going to continue to try to save him. Or is she finally going to be like, there's no saving Luke. He's gone forever. But anyway, so hopefully we'll find that out in the next book. But right after Annabeth reveals that, Hera shows up at the top of Camp Half-Blood Hill or whatever. And <laughs> she tells them like how much she helped them. And we find out that like she obviously didn't care about Nico Like, she only was helping Percy and Annabeth, but she wasn't helping Nico at all. And she didn't care what would happen to him. So a comment Hephaestus made earlier about how, why he doesn't like Hera is that she only helps people when it has something to do with, like, she wants to keep her perfect family. Which is why, like, she cast Hephaestus, like, off of Olympus. And that's why he, like...
1: Her literal son.
0: Her literal son, because he was ugly. So She was like,
1: he's got fire in his beard. Out.
0: So Hera's kind of a little bit like... She's one of those people that she just cares so much about appearances that she doesn't do what's right. She only does what's right when it serves her and benefits her. So,
1: And we know I don't like Hera after last book because I felt like she's a weak god. Like, we've got Athena making babies with her brain. <laughs> we've got Aphrodite sending people on trippy vacations. We've got Artemis literally creating a cult of immortal women. And then we've got Hera, like, my husband said I can't leave the castle Ugh. Yeah. Anyway, and we get this great moment because Annabeth even sides with Percy. She calls out Hera. She's like, you only do care about your perfect family. And then Annabeth storms away. And it was like, wait, wait, no, you're supposed to storm away with Percy. Like, she, ugh, I've already said it this episode, but, like, her behavior is really frustrating. Her rudeness, because Percy is so dedicated to her. He literally risked his life to travel a country and then held up the weight of the sky for her. And she's like, you know what? She's a redhead. He might like a redhead better than me. Like, <laughs> oh my God. I was so mad at her. And again, I still think that her defending of Luke is inexcusable. I don't. I know that he. she looked up to him. I know that he was important. But like, he has given himself to the embodiment of evil.
0: Yeah. It's sad. It, it does suck too because Annabeth and Percy, their relationship kind of ends on a rough patch at the end of the book because they don't really get to discuss anything like – Annabeth's going to San Francisco. Percy's going back to New York with his mom, and they don't kind of get to talk. You know, are we gonna go see each other? Like nothing. So it was just sad. But when Percy goes home, we do have a new relationship developing because Paul blowfist Blofy, which I I gotta say I think it's blowfist because when Poseidon spoiler when Poseidon shows up, he even says. Is it blowfish? So I feel like you wouldn't p- mispronounce blowfy. You mispronounce if they said blowfish and they were like blowfish. You know what I mean?
1: Okay. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I just feel like
0: like it makes sense. Because you know, yeah. if somebody said
1: blowfish, it's just ridiculous. But whatever. Okay, whatever. Paul,
0: he says that he's going to propose to Percy's mom, which I just also I kept forgetting what his mom's name was. <laughs> Sally. Which, in the book, then they say her name, because they don't say her name that often unless somebody's speaking to her. And so I was like, what's his mom's name?" And then they say, like, Sally.
1: Actually, it's actually the perfect name for his mom, because she's, like, it's kind of like this, like, classic, wholesome name. And his mom, also, I forgot to mention this earlier, but I had in my notes, his mom is such a savage, because when Percy comes and Percy and Annabeth, like, swing by on their way to pick up Rachel or something like that, and Aunt per- she's like, I said something is wrong, and they're all like, no, nothing's wrong. We're totally fine. Because Annabeth's being jealous and stupid. And she's like, mm-hmm, I can tell. Yeah, I really like Sally Jackson. She's also, when it was really funny when Poseidon shows up. And, oh, my God. And she's like, Pose Oh, hi. Like, like, she just knows Poseidon, like, first name basis. And he's like, hi, Sally. You're beautiful. And she's like.
0: <laughs> <laughs> they had a child together. <laughs>
1: I know, but it was just like, oh, I just. Anyway, I really liked it. But Poseidon shows up to Percy's birthday, and he tells him that he's his favorite son. And I was like, oh, I'm emotional. And then he warns that the Titan Typhoon, who is in the volcano, will probably escape and attack Olympus. So that's some foreshadowing. But it was really, really touching when Poseidon's like, you're my favorite son. I was like, yeah, he is your favorite son, but he's never gotten to go on the vacation to the water palace yet.
0: (laughs) I, yeah, that was definitely my favorite part of the whole book because Percy finally gets like real recognition, especially from his father who essentially has been absent from his life. Like, I think that's something, especially like for kids who don't grow up with one parent, like it's so, it's just so incredible. I feel like to get that praise. So I just, I really like that also for Poseidon to go out of his way to go see Percy at his home. Like I really like, it was a very wholesome moment. So I really like that. But then we have the end of the book where Nico shows up right after Poseidon leaves on Percy's fire escape, which, how did he get up there? (laughs) So Nico.
1: Nico can also fly.
0: Or teleport or something. He
1: can teleport. He can also, you know, make lava rocks and the underworld, but he can also fly. Like he's got all the... Big three powers.
0: Anyway, so he shows up on Percy's Firescape and he tells Percy that he has a way that he thinks that they can beat Luke, but he doesn't say anything else, so I guess we'll be hearing about his idea in the next book.
1: Yeah, I guess we will. We still haven't gotten any confirmation on those spies at Camp Half-Blood, right?
0: Nope. I I think we're going <laughs> to... I think maybe next book, but honestly, that might be a plot hole. Like, they just... Riordan never really... Specified.
1: I'm not wrong. Like, there were spies mentioned, right?
0: Yes, we've talked about it multiple times. There's definitely spies.
1: I'm really worried. It's probably just not
0: that important.
1: Well, I'm worried that, like, maybe we're just supposed to forget about them. Maybe it's a plot hole. Or maybe, like, we're supposed to just chalk it up to Quintus. But I'm like, again, as we discussed last episode, Quintus can't have been the spy. Also,
0: because based on what he says in the end of what he did for them I don't think he was spying on them I think he was just wanted to see he says he wanted to see both sides before he made a decision on what he wanted to do and he even says the reason why he gave it up is because he felt that he saw the camp didn't stand a chance and so being the Athena child smart person he was like I'm gonna pick the winning side so I don't think it was solely be him if him at all I think it's probably honestly it's just unnamed kids in like the Hermes cabin like we're probably never gonna get names since.
1: I just better not be Charles Beckendorf Festus's kid because he's I got doubt no name. It. and he seems like such a good guy.
0: <laughs> I don't he's like think friends I even. With Tyson. I honestly don't even think I caught that his name was Charles because they always call him by his last name.
1: Yeah, I know, but I noticed because he has my name.
0: <laughs> good for if you. If there's a
1: character named Asia in one of these books, I'm sure you'll remember.
0: I mean, odds I are just, there's gonna be
1: more Charles's, let's be yeah, real. Yeah, I was gonna
0: say I'm like, I don't think we'll ever read a book where the character main character, any of the characters are named Asia. So Okay, we'll
1: listeners, you can reach out to me directly and then I will put it into our queue. If you know of a book that has Asia's name in it, um she spells it like the continent, so make sure that you know. It'll you be get more that likely spelling. that
0: we'll read a book where they mention the continent of Asia before we get a person named that.
1: I'm <laughs> trying to think if our next series we go to Asia. But I don't think we do. I think it's just Europe and the U.S. and another place, which I'm not going to mention. Speaking of which, I think that we should probably wrap up this episode. Yep. Getting a little sidetracked. But next week, we will be moving into the final book of our series. We'll be reading chapters 1 through 12 next week. In the final book of the series, Percy Jackson and The Last Olympian so if you're reading along read up to that point with us and as promised we are going to let you know what our next series is so that you can start to prepare if you need to we're going to be moving on to the secrets of the immortal nicholas flamel by michael scott the first book is called the alchemist and it's spelled with a y instead of an i so but if you look up the secrets of the immortal nicholas flamel you'll be able to find it and we have to come up with an acronym because we can't say that out loud every time percy jackson is a lot easier to say but we're moving on to the first book of the series, which is called The Alchemist. So if you do need to check that out or find a way to get it, you have a couple weeks before we start covering it.
0: Yep. So let us know or just stay in touch with us regarding anything on the Nerd Party website. You can head over to nerdparty.com/slash contact and select throwback paperback. You can also send us an email there and get in touch with the network on Twitter at join Nerd Party or on Instagram at the nerdparty. And to find me, I'm at Asia asia.bonia on Twitter and at asia.bonia on Instagram.
1: And I'm both on Instagram and Twitter at C.E. Sheeland. We're a podcast, new podcast. I think when we finish Percy Jackson, then we'll no longer be a new podcast.
0: We said episode 10. So this is the last we said episode. episode. 12.
1: We said episode 12. You said
0: episode 10.
1: I said 12 because we the said- first three what came out as one episode.
0: Oh, maybe I, maybe I made that up. I thought you said, well, anyway, this is our 10th episode, so I'm excited. (laughs) This is our 10th
1: episode. Yeah. We did 10 episodes. We did 10 episodes. Yeah. We're almost, we're a not quite new podcast on the Nerd Party Network. So, you know, check us out. Um, Share us with your friends. And, of course, rate, review, subscribe to the show, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Check out the awesome podcasts on the Nerd Party Network. We have a couple new ones that have just launched recently. So, listen to those as well.
0: Yep. And I think that's it. So thanks, everyone. We'll see you next week. Join the revolution. Join the nerd party.